When we think about energy, we tend to think of technologies, like wind turbines, pipelines, or cars. But underlying all technologies are people, and the human dimensions of energy are fraught with inequities. Just Energy is a podcast collaboration between me, an energy justice professor at Indiana University's O'Neill School, and my Master of Public Affairs students. Here, we explore what energy injustice is, its racial and social dimensions, and how to make future energy policy more inclusive by design. Because it's never just about energy, it's about people. Greetings, I'm Sonia Carley. Welcome to our first episode of Just Energy. When brainstorming this podcast, it took me less than five seconds to identify who I would want to be our first guest. And it is truly an honor that Jacqueline or Jackie Patterson said yes. Although I didn't ask permission to use this moniker, I like to think of Jackie as the mother of energy and climate justice. She has courageously served at the forefront of this field for over a decade and has been truly instrumental in conceptualizing and mobilizing over this time the connections between energy, health, and social justice and racial justice. Jackie's time is very limited these days. She recently founded and serves as the executive director of the Chisholm Legacy Project, which is a resource hub for Black frontline climate justice leadership and serves as a vehicle to connect Black communities on the front lines of climate justice with resources to envision and enact change. Prior to the launch of the Chisholm Legacy Project, Patterson served as the Senior Director of the NAACP Environmental and Climate Justice Program for over a decade. But before we welcome Jackie, let me introduce our student co-host this week. Alana Davasino is a student in our MPA program at the O'Neill School, where she is focusing her studies on environmental policy and climate justice. Prior to starting her MPA, Alana worked at a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., researching the gender gap in startup funding. She has also worked in international development, supporting USAID and World Bank projects in Central America. Alana, welcome. Why don't you tell us where you're from? Thank you so much, Sonia. Um, So I grew up on Long Island, New York, about an hour from New York City. Wonderful. And what is your favorite thing about New York City and New York? Yeah, um, so Long Island, I think, is an underrated place. Uh, we have New York City to the west, a wine country an hour to the east, and beaches all around. Um, and of course, the pizza and bagels are also very excellent. Oh, yes, pizza and bagels, two of my favorite things. Is it true <laughs> that the bagels are are different in New York than elsewhere in the country? Oh, yes, yes. The hype is real. The hype is real. I've wondered. <laughs> uh, and Alana, tell us what your favorite thing is about your O'Neill School experience so far. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about O'Neill so far has been just discovering a community of really genuine, um, smart, down-to-earth people who are passionate about working on some of the world's biggest challenges. Oh, that is a perfect foray into welcoming again, Jackie Patterson. Jackie, welcome and greetings to the podcast. Thank you. It's very good to be here. It's an honor. Thank you. And I could have continued on the topic of bagels for a lot longer. (laughs) (laughs) So Jackie, as you know, the topic of our podcast is energy justice. And I'm curious to hear from you, what does energy justice mean to you? Yes, energy justice means uh, multiple things. One is that, uh, that, that, that everyone should have access to affordable, consistent, energy. Um, Two is that that energy is produced in a way that is not harmful to to planet or people, so that we have energy that uh, that is produced by non-polluting means. And three, that that the energy economy doesn't also, doesn't um, 
doesn't impact our, our political economy in harmful ways, because currently we know that the fossil fuel industry has a outsized impact on our legislatures and even our courts to some extent. And not only does that affect our, our energy landscape, but it also affects our clean air policies and therefore pollution at large. And then it also affects even other issues because groups Groups in the fossil fuel industry also pay into um, organizations like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which does everything for from pushing on school privatization, prison privatization, water privatization, to pushing back on um, on voter rights and pushing forward on voter suppression laws, et cetera, et cetera. So, the energy. So, really, uh, for us, energy justice is uh, is having an energy landscape that's accessible, affordable. And um, and in all ways is is promoting um, justice and liberation, <laughs> liberty for all. So yes. And what led you to pursue a profession in this field, in the field of energy and climate justice? Yeah. So I definitely did not pursue a career in <laughs> energy or climate or even environmental justice. It it more happened to me, and then I couldn't get out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, my first interaction directly with environmental issues was when I was in Peace Corps in Jamaica and happened upon a group called the, the um, Community Environmental Resource Center, which started because this community that I had been in touch with had their water supply contaminated by shell oil. And then it was this, this typical David and Goliath situation where, you know, the community was trying to get justice, but they were up against this, this giant that had so much more in the way of money and power and so forth. So the compensation that they got from being poisoned was 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 a pittance really in terms of yeah a pittance literally because they got ventilated improved pit um, latrines as part of their compensation as well as uh funding for a recovery reuse and recycle program in their in their local school like that was literally it what they got for being poisoned and so and so from there, that that kind of certainly heightened my awareness, but it didn't necessarily start me on a career path around environmental justice. I went from there to go into school into public health because of just seeing the, the, the challenges with public health systems and really wanting to use my, I, I, I combined a social work degree in community organizing with a technical, more technical skills in public health and really worked on having ways that communities can have more power around, you know, social determinants of health and so forth. Um, and that includes things like what happened with um, the Shell Oil situation there. Um, and anyway, fast forward, uh, after doing public health for, for multiple years, I, I ended up um, in the situation where I volunteered after Hurricane Katrina, and that further heightened my kind of uh, awareness of these intersections. And I, um, but I didn't go into environmental justice then either. But it was, but these are just kind of bricks along the path. But fast forward again after doing um, doing work on gender while doing work on gender justice internationally. This is where I really started to 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 actually work explicitly on this intersection of gender justice and climate change. And from there, that's <laughs> where I really kind of deepened this work around gender justice and climate change. And as I started to do the work on climate change and its impacts, 
and how do we mitigate the proliferation of climate change, then of course, energy being the, at that time, the number one contributor um, of the greenhouse gas emissions that drive climate change became a critical issue. And so while looking at it from an emissions reduction standpoint, then I also looked at it from how it's not only affecting emitting greenhouse gas emissions and harming the planet, but how the various um, various facilities are harming people, as well as uh, the differential access and affordability to energy. So all of the issues, you know, just like everything that I do when I was working on gender justice, then it became clear about climate change and all these other issues. And so similarly, when I started working on climate change and energy, then it became clear all the other ways that um, these impacts are proliferating. So hey, I really appreciate hearing about that circuitous path um, because, uh, you know, as a student and kind of an early career professional, I've always been curious about sort of like the professional path that people take. It's often not quite a straight line and it's a little windy and um, you might end up somewhere you don't expect, but that is is right and is um, where your passion lies. And um, so, yeah, you have such an interesting path. That's always my top message whenever I'm speaking to student groups is that, you know, it doesn't have to be a linear path, nor do you have to have this, this singular focus that the integration is, is also appreciated. One thing you said is, is that you were looking early in your career about ways that um, communities can have more power. Um, so, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about how, um, how that ties into your work um, with the new initiative you're launching, the Chisholm Legacy Project. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that uh, their mission and um, just would love to hear a little bit about how that ties in and maybe what inspired your transition um, there and, and your vision. Yeah, so just like you said, um, it really is all about community power. Um, and, and so the Chisholm Legacy Project in some ways has four kind of foci, but all interconnected. And one, the first one is community building and really working with communities to move from where often things are happening to our communities and, and that often there, there isn't the agency, whether it's because of the power of the fossil fuel industry or just because of the history of systemic oppression. And so, so working with, so the first focus is really working with communities to help to develop vision. Um, often too many of the communities that we that come under our um, attention, come to our attention are, is because of something that they're fighting, you know, a, a pipeline, a coal plant, a incinerator or whatever. And so, and so really working with communities to go beyond like what they don't want, things like pollution and dumping, et cetera, et cetera, and really visioning what they what they do want. And even that, like we found that, that it's a kind of a, a craft to be able to get folks to the place where they're really engaging around real radical imagination of what can be. And not thinking of radical imagination as, a, as an imagination is often tied with fantasy, but saying that there are these possibilities and we have to push back against this false narrative that has become pervasive around scarcity and really recognizing that there is truly abundance and that we we are um that that's where we need to gear our, our visions towards and so um so the work that that around around heart around working with communities to kind of 
harvest these uh, these visions is, has been critical in terms of developing, going from vision to developing strategies, developing action plans to implementation, and then uh, what what we've seen as transformation once communities are are really see the pathways and the and the uh, mechanisms for for self determination. So the first focus was uh, was community building, and then the second is is movement building, and so. It's one thing when we when communities experience change at the local level, but then we want to make sure that we're actually also advancing that systems change so that these changes can be at scale. So changing policies and, and so forth. And so with movement building, we are supporting the ways that the movement can build power to push, you know, transformation at scale. And that's everything from developing trainings and certification programs that are, that are scaled trainings and certification programs done at the regional national level to putting together formations of folks who are kind of um, affinity groups. So whether it's a black faith leaders, black culture workers, black um, black uh, entrepreneurs, et cetera, et cetera. And then and then also making the connection from global, from local to global through our Afro-Descendant Leadership Initiative on Environmental and Climate Justice done in partnership with the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance. And then from there, it's also recognizing that, you know, mainstream environmentalism and other, you know, large sector work also still has a, a because of the lion's share of the resources go to these like big green organizations and so forth. And also looking at you know, philanthropy itself and, and federal government and, and other state and local government. So the other part, the third part is bending the arc of mainstream environmentalism towards equity and justice. And so that is, uh, that is, and so that's everything from, we have this uh, website called POC and ECJ, which .org, which is, which stands for People of Color in Environmental and Climate Justice. And with the, the work that we do in number, in the first and the second foci, it actually generates and builds people to then be a, be, be in, you know, be in the database so that people who need people in their in employment, in their jobs, on the steering committees, in their advisory groups for speaking engagements, they have a whole array of people that can do that, and people who we've worked with um, to kind of really hone that equity and justice analysis so that they can influence uh, mainstream environmentalism. We also have in their resources in, in that third bucket uh, resources around Jedi, so that when when they're inviting people to those to the organizations and so forth, they don't come into um, non-fertile ground <laughs> because people aren't really ready in terms of understanding how to to be inclusive in a way that's meaningful and um and and at least not harmful <laughs> and so uh, and then the fourth bucket is is supporting black femme leadership and we say black femme because you know we, we we're trying to recognize the um you know the non-binary spectrum, but recognizing that, that you know, kind of female-identified um, people are often holding so much of our movements, and then holding so much of frontline impacts as well, and um, and wanting to make sure that that they are held as much as they are holding. So, um, so making sure that every black woman, woman or black femme in climate has access to coaching, has access to respite, you know, respite retreats, has access to residencies, healing justice circles, and so forth and so on. So 
those are the four foci of the Chisholm Legacy Project. And and in answer to your question about you know why the Chisholm Legacy Project now in terms of an evolution from being at the NACP, the Environmental Climate Justice Program was one of six programs at the NACP and we had grown to such an extent that we were kind of bursting at the seams. Um, and I, mean, I was getting up to 50 emails per hour. I was literally, I fall asleep on my laptop every night. And in the morning, I wake up and just start typing from you know, finishing that sentence that I fell asleep on. And that was just like my life. Um, and so really, we just needed that, that, that space to grow into it, um, to grow into it in terms of having the capacity to really rise to the extreme demands that we were under. And we also wanted to, 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 to hang out our umbrella, like we were serving the, the, the NAACP branches and chapters, and that was really our focus. And there are so many communities that were coming to us and saying, well, we don't actually have a branch or chapter here, or our branch or chapter is really focused on other things. And we don't want to force them to try, you know, try to force them to take on this issue of environmental climate justice, you know, when they're dealing with criminal justice and all these other things that are really, you know, so we, um, so we, we just felt like we needed to, to rise to the demands outside of our, the constituency. And so now we, we serve both the NACP constituency and the other kind of 37 million black people in the, in the United States and other BIPOC communities as well. It's not exclusive. It's just it's just kind of customized towards, towards that constituency. It's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> well, I loved I loved your answer and it's so inspirational, honestly. And I can attest to just just how busy you are and just how many emails. Um, so you've you've visited IU and most recently giving a talk where I think you were backstage about to give a big talk to a, a big group. Uh, and yet you you joined a team of us, a group of us on Zoom and you had your mask on and gave a talk, but there was a knock at the door and you had to you had to leave one talk to go give another talk, which was just truly incredible. So it is um, it's very evident just how much of a demand there is for your work and for so so much of this this type of work. This this actually brings me uh, to my next question, which is I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about kind of the arc or the trajectory of the field of climate or the fields of climate and energy justice over the time that you've been working in this area. So in your decade plus at the NAACP and now with your current role, have you experienced or witnessed, observed changes uh, within the field, within the broader field of climate and energy, perhaps in terms of receptiveness to these ideas or any other kinds of, of major changes or not uh, over that time? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's a very good question. So, yes. So one is I have seen where there has been certainly a, sh a shift towards towards mm, kind of a disproportionate focus on ending fossil fuel-based energy production without the equal amount of emphasis on building the alternative. So it made it harder politically and otherwise to advance that change when, when people were only seeing ending of opportunities as they saw it as opposed, you know, without really growing of new opportunities. So the whole kind of conversation on just transition, quote unquote, was too abstract for people because there wasn't enough of an emphasis on the new energy economy. And so now we are seeing certainly a lot more of an emphasis on the new energy economy, and that has been a positive change. Um, another thing that has been good has been 
although I feel, yeah, although I feel like it can go further. While we were at the NACP, we started the Black Labor Initiative on Just Transition so that we really did have labor and the people who are going to be on the front lines of losing their current jobs um, in terms of what they're doing now, um, on the front lines of really re-envisioning what that pathway to ensuring that, that they maintain livelihoods even as we move away from the fossil fuel economy. So with that, and so I, I, one thing that I would, I would love to see more of is that kind of dialogue and that kind of putting, making sure the labor is at the, at the forefront of some of these conversations, labor and workers and so forth. Um, and that's something I would say has gone definitely too slowly as well. And then another thing that I think has been good has been the recognition for the need for, for multi-solving as we advance a new energy economy and the concept of climate change and, and, seeing that, um, and seeing that in order to advance the new energy economy, we have to talk about everything from housing you know, and, and um, sustainable buildings to talking about not just jobs, but economic development, economic opportunity, entrepreneurship, and so forth in the new energy economy, and talking about kind of power control and decision making, and really in that term, in that vein of democ energy democracy, is, um, and making sure that as we build this new energy economy, we don't have yet another, like we don't have all of a sudden now this, the clean energy lobby that has an outsized impact on our democracy as well. So, so, so really, um, I've appreciated us moving towards uh, distributed generation and, and distri therefore distributed kind of power and, and distributed wealth in the context of the new energy economy. So those are a few observations I'd throw out. <laughs> I'm wondering what, um, what you would say, you know, uh, throughout your work and your engagement with stakeholders, what would be something or, or a few things that people might commonly misunderstand um, or, or that may not resonate with people? Yes, I would say, for one thing, I think that people don't necessarily understand how many people are in energy poverty or, or like, I, I think that People like we put out that report, lights out in the cold, reforming utility shutoff policies of human rights matter to help people to understand the circumstances that people are in. And we really try to provide like individual stories so that people don't think that people are like buying rims for their car instead of um, instead of paying for their energy bills. Like there's people who are just having super tough choices and um, and literally paying the price of poverty with their lives. I think in this day and age, people wouldn't have known and still don't know because there's only so many people who read that report or whatever that how many people are are dying because of lack of energy um so that's definitely i would say uh something that people don't get i think people also don't fully the the uh the dominant narrative has allowed this understanding this this misperception that the fossil fuel energy is equated with reliability and consistency of energy 
and they think that um, a clean energy is just, just this kind of murky unknown of unreliability. And so I think that that, that narrative really needs to be corrected. Um, and I think that people for the, to a large extent don't know the connection between our energy economy and climate change. Like they don't know that the reason that these fire, forest fires and uh, and um, and disaster, other disasters and sea level rise and so forth, they, I mean, I would be interested in a street poll, you know, like how many people really get that, it, you know, that when we turn on our lights for the vast majority of us, like that's directly contributing to, to what we're seeing from, from these major disasters. Um, people don't fully grasp that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I was just going to say also, you know, like there, there were, uh, maybe pictures missing, um, like the, in the way that people understand energy injustice, um, because, because it can look like so many different things like living near power plants or getting electricity cut off, um, and, and other, other types of situations. Yes, absolutely. I've actually wondered if some of the climate induced disasters have helped unfortunately raise the profile of some of the challenges that are experienced by low-income communities and communities of color on a daily basis. Uh, just as an example, the Texas polar vortex or the big freeze that happened earlier this year in February, where somewhere between we think 150 to maybe up to 700 people died as a result of having no access to power. I'm curious if you think that um, media coverage of these types of incidents where people realize what extreme conditions one might have to face if they don't have access to power could help raise the profile or has actually helped raise the profile of the incidence of this problem of energy poverty that we know affects millions of Americans across the country every year. Or if it we're just you know kind of tunnel visioned on the specific disaster and we fail to recognize the, the broader implications or the broader um, sets of communities that face this daily. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It does raise attention for that those groups at that moment, but the scale is the part that people, I think, continue to, to miss. The scale and the pervasiveness beyond this, these flash-in-the-pan moments. Yeah, and that's what, so, but, so it definitely helps, you know, because it's, you know, they didn't know it all. Now they at least know that it affects, you know, those folks and that there might be other people who are vulnerable. And we need to, yeah, somehow convey the scale. That's right. And of course, with the increased incidence of these disasters, it's, it will be the same disadvantaged communities that continue to become even more impoverished from these, these con conditions, right? Exactly. Yeah. And um, I wonder, uh, I, I think, Jackie, I've heard you mention in previous interviews about um, equitable disaster management. Um, could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, absolutely. Equitable disaster management starts from everything. We just put out a report in partnership with Columbia University about um, called Turning the Tide. And it was talking about um, disaster or flooding infrastructure. And and it's ties with structural, historic structural racism. So, so every so when we think about 
disaster management and the whole continuum of disaster management from mitigation to preparedness and so forth, then we have to look at everything from the, the levy infrastructure that exists. And what we found during um, hurricane, after Hurricane Isaac, which took place in 2012, was we visited Plaquemines Parish in Louisiana and found it was completely devastated by Hurricane Isaac. And we we're trying to figure out like, there have been seven years of levy fortification by the Army Corps of Engineers and why it was that that levy didn't protect that community. And um, the Senator at that time who was over that area, Mary Landrieu asked, uh, was asked by CNN, you know, why Plaquemines Parish was inundated. And she said she asked the Army Corps of Engineers the same question. And they said they use a formula to decide what um, levies were prioritized for fortification. And that formula provides points to each levy based on what the economic impact would be if it was overtaken. So even though that sounds, you know, you know, somewhat reasonable, you know, in a, in a, and like if you're kind of an economist um, that is only focused on one part of, of the economy, um, what it fails to take into account in this kind of notion of cost benefit analysis is who's paying and what are they paying with, you know? So it might be that someone with a very expensive high rise that they that people are, you know, or, or, or home that they only stay in half the year because there's snowbirds or, or whatever. Um, or it might be that someone's kind of home with, with not the greatest housing stock because they're, you know, because of their economic condition. It's in the floodplain because, you know, traditionally um, there's more, much more of a likelihood of living in a floodplain if you're African American or lower income. And it's the only home that you know that you're hunkered down in because you don't also don't have transportation, then it's, you know, so there's much more of a threat to, to life, much more of a threat to some to someone's only home, much more of a threat to, 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 yeah, to life and livelihood. But yet that doesn't enter into the equation with that kind of just, you know, very, very basic cost benefit of uh, analysis of how much more it's going to cost in dollars versus actually valuing human life and well-being. So so that that's just just starting there, you know, in the continuum to going through to talking about redevelopment post-disaster and how many people end up redeveloped right out of their hand, their um, homes um, permanently, whether it's because there's more of an incident of, of renter renters in um African-American and other communities or it, and so therefore it's harder to, you know, a lot of the uh, resources are tied to home ownership or it's, um, or it's that people don't have flood insurance. And so when, um, when flooding incidents happen, that's usually when you find out that you don't have the flood insurance clause, you think you have homeowners insurance, so you're all set. And then you find out you don't have that critical clause. Sure. And um, yeah, I, I'd also love to know, um, is there, as we've kind of talked about, um, like the course of your your career and, and your time at the NAACP, and now that you've kind of arrived at, at this initiative um, now, is there anything that surprised you over the course of doing this work? Uh, that's a good question. Surprised me over the course of doing this work. You know, in some ways, I would say kind of innocently the level of influence that the fossil fuel that the that industry actually has over our you know our, our legislature like I was 
you know, and that's just, you know, from, yeah, over our legislatures, over our courts, um, the fact that, that there were, and, and, and then also just the level of heartlessness, you know, <laughs> like I, I naively, yeah, it just surprised me. Like to have, for example, after, after National Mining Association fought against the rules that would have protected their very own workers from coal mine, coal mine dust resulting in the deaths of 76,000 coal miners and counting. But on top of that, to then when families are going in trying to get um, resources as you know, part of the funds, funds that are set up, they, they paid doctors to go in and say it wasn't black lung disease. To look at these, these, these x-rays and say it's not black lung disease, it's some rare form of t tuberculosis that's broken out among minors alone. I mean, like literally to do that, like into, you know, in those instances, like multiple other doctors will look at the same, you know, x-rays and say, this is definitely black lung disease. And then, Somehow, this doctor that's paid by the um, industry is saying it's not black lung disease at all. I mean, just that sheer level of heartlessness is. I mean, it's because it's one thing when you're just you know you're just protecting your profits out there, and you you maybe aren't thinking about impact, or if you're thinking about impact, you 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 know you're just like whatever. But like to actually have families that are trying to get cut for their dead relatives, just trying to survive, to actually pay someone and say that they didn't have black lung. I mean, that's just a whole nother level of heartlessness that I just can't even wrap my head around. So I know that sounds naive, but I think I still <laughs> be shocked by it, but go on. Wow. Yeah, no, that's really powerful. And I, and I think... Um... Sometimes as students, we can relate to that feeling of, you know, maybe going into something a little naive, mm -hmm. um, having spent no time or just a few years in, in, in the field and, and perhaps um, being a little shell-shocked when we come into situations like that where we see just this level of absolute heartlessness or, you know, things that are very, very disappointing. Um, but I think it can also help get us a little fired up. So that might be a, a silver lining. <laughs> right, definitely. So amidst all of this heartlessness, what is it that gives you hope? It gives me hope when all the community, like, so for what, every community that I go to that is facing some level of devastation and so forth, I go to another community that is seizing the reins and that is really moving forward into self-determination. And that has a story of how they have overcome and that not only are they surviving, but they're thriving in a, a new way, a new order, <laughs> um, a new societal order that really centers cooperation, that really centers relationships with each other and with the land. And that and that and and in kind of being the change that we want to see in the world, they provide like a, a light for others. So then I can go back to that same community I just visited that was devastated and say, hey, this other community has the same kind of circumstances that 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 you had. They had that as initially, and here's what they did. Like, let's think about how we might be able to customize, like to get to the vision that you expressed during our visioning session. Here are the steps that that community took to get to some of the same outcomes. And so then to be able to, to, to accompany a community in taking those steps, um, that 
definitely keeps me going because it lets me know that it's possible that this the change the vision that we all want is is possible and that people are already doing it and that we just need to take it to scale so that's what drives the the model of the Chisholm legacy project that's what drives me to get up every morning <laughs> and that's what um that's what I think can drive so many of us if we just you know, jump in. That's so inspirational. And it very much hits on the theme that you talked about of creating a vision towards abundance, which I I love. I love the sound of it. I love imagining (laughs) you being there as part of that visionary process and being a part of those communities and uplifting them. So thank you. you. (laughs) Thank you for that work. Thank you. (laughs) So Jackie, I think you know that this podcast is part of a collaboration uh, between myself and uh, our students. We have doctoral students and MPA students in a seminar class at the O'Neill School. And so I'd love just to end with a question about um, our students and advice that you might have. So what advice do you have for current and future generation of leaders as they set out to tackle these issues of energy and climate justice, as well as racial justice, social justice, and so many health health dimensions and all of the other interrelated complex challenges and opportunities that you discussed today? I would just offer that sometimes uh, I'll, I'll have conversations with a funder or another nonprofit organization that that where they define rigidly what climate change is or or what climate change work is. And, and what you just said in terms of those intersections is something that I would encourage people to always think of, not both in terms of being mindful around what climate justice is in the context of whatever we're doing um, and how we can advance that in whatever we're doing, and also, and, and therefore, like there's someone asked me, they were a geologist and they're like, how can I contribute? And I said, well, you know, everything from helping to make the tie between fracking and earthquakes um, to looking at the, the limestone in, in uh, Florida and the sinkholes and how that might relate to, to sea level rise. Um, to and uh, even desalination and so how the way how the ways that uh, whatever we do how there's these intersections that we that we can you know, connections we can draw in our professions but then even in our uh, in our non-work lives that there's ways whether we're volunteering in a local environmental justice organizations doing a local community cleanup starting a local microgrid or food co-op that really there's kind of big and small ways that we contribute. And the only thing that matters is that we all do something, you know, along the continuum of small or or large. But if we all do something, then, you know, it will be enough to get us there. Well, sadly, we're out of time. And I know the time with you is precious. So thank you, Jackie, so much for your inspirational words and for serving as a leader in this field. Pleasure. Thank you so much. I look forward to uh, staying in touch. Absolutely. And thank you also, Alana, for being a co-host today on this episode. Thank you so much. And thank you, Jackie. It's such a pleasure talking to you. And you as well. Thank you. Just Energy is produced by Violet Barron and is a collaboration between myself and my public affairs students at Indiana University. In closing, we wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to our region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. 
We recognize the Miyamiaki, Lenape, Bodawadmik, and Sawanwa people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. We implore the federal government to respect its treaties with indigenous nations, as well as recognize all tribes seeking federal recognition.